If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale. Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. You're going to make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. There's a very famous actor in the 4th century called Neoptolemus who became a bit of a superstar. I mean, really a sort of Brad Pitt-type figure. And these actors were so much superstars that they would occasionally be sent on diplomatic missions to represent Athens. That was Michael Scott on the world of ancient Greek theatre. If anything, it's more important to show the mundane, how mundane prison life was on a day-to-day level. And that was Alison Brown on location at Beaumaris Jail. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. My name is Rob Attar and I'm the editor of BBC History magazine, which is the UK's best-selling history magazine. You can find it in all good newsagents and on subscription. Visit historyextra.com forward slash subscribe hyphen today for our latest subscription deals. And we have digital editions available for the iPad, the Kindle, the Kindle Fire, Google Play and Zinio. For details of these, head to historyextra.com forward slash digital. Theatre in ancient Greece is a subject that is doubly fascinating today. 
for not only does it contain the origins of modern-day theatre, but it also tells us a great deal about the wider Greek society that created it. To find out more, I spoke to classical historian Michael Scott, who recently presented a BBC TV series on Greek theatre. To what extent did the ancient Greeks invent theatre as we know of it now? It's a good question. And, you know, in a large part, we do have to say the ancient Greeks were fundamental to uh, conceptualising and putting on stage theatre as we understand it today. I mean, there was a moment, we can't know the details for sure, it's all sort of lost in, lost in, in myth and later storytelling, but there was a moment when we think as part of the religious festivals in honour of the god Dionysus, there was a moment when from that choral group, that group of people who were singing in unison in honour of the god, that someone stepped forward and spoke back to the group, the chorus. And that was the origins of drama, that conversation, that dialogue. And there is again stories about uh, a playwright called Thespis, linked to our word thespian who came from the deme of Ikarion, one of the sort of small units of the Athenian democracy and he was responsible for uh, getting those dialogues really going and creating the first plays as we would understand it so that time you know in the 6th century BC sometime in the 6th century BC absolutely crucial for the conception and staging of our drama today and when we're talking about Greek theatre was it predominantly in Athens or was this going on throughout the Greek world it's a developing story. I mean, it starts very much in Athens and theatre is born uh, and, and really sort of has its, not just its adolescence, but, but, but also a good part of its prime within the, the belly of the Athenian democracy. It is fundamentally tied to uh, the performance of Athenian democracy and it's fundamentally part of the way Athenian democracy did its stuff, trained its citizens to think through and debate about issues and ideas. But what's extraordinary about theatre, and this is what we, we, we tried to cover over the three episodes, is the way that theatre, if you like, um, survives Athens's downfall uh, in the 4th century BC and onwards and actually takes off and spreads its own wings at that point. And it really is in the 4th century BC that you start to see theatre spreading across the ancient Greek world and the wider Mediterranean world. Partly it's because conquerors like Alexander the Great went east and took Greek culture with them. So you can see Greek theatres in Afghanistan, for instance. But it's also because uh, colonies and cities that had been created and, and sort of were part of the Greek cultural mix, particularly those in southern Italy and, Syri and Sicily, really began to take hold of theatre and create their own dramas, their own plays, and they became absolute epicentres um, that would push theatre, continue theatre's rise and ascendancy way past the story of Athens. And I, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating is that when you get into the Hellenistic world, so the world after Alexander the Great, the world that sort of connects up the Greek and, and then the Roman uh, empires, the vast majority of, of, of theatre and the, is happening not in Greece, but actually in places like suddenly Italy and Sicily, but also in Egypt and those great Hellenistic centres like Alexandria. And it is in the deserts of Egypt, in ancient rubbish dumps, that we are still today continually finding pieces of papyri that have survived because of the dryness of the sand, that have got ancient dramas written on them, ones that we've never known existed before, just keep coming literally out of the rubbish um, for us to find. So, so what did theatre mean to the ancient Greeks? Did it mean the same as it does to us today? Was it just sort of a cultural experience or was it far more important than that? 
I think it was firstly very different in many ways and and probably also much more important. Uh, first, an extremely different experience. Uh, Theatre in ancient Athens in the glorious sort of fifth century, the century of Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, was experienced not as something you could choose to go to or not as a bit of entertainment in the evening, but it was a fundamental five-day festival when everything else in the town shut down. There was nothing else to do. Even prisoners were supposedly let out of jail so that they could go to the theatre and experience this extraordinary theatrical moment in the Athenian calendar. And there, there would be sort of from dawn till dusk, you would sit there watching plays. I mean, the idea that we would go for sort of something like nine hours and watch three tragedies back to back, followed by a satyr plays, you know, we just wouldn't do that now. Uh, and given that it was in daylight and it was outdoors, it was also very much more an experience in which both the audience and the people acting on the stage were on view to one another. You could see everyone in the audience, you could see how they were reacting. And it was all part of a competition as well. The playwrights were competing against one another to win the prize. Somebody very recently in response to the TV show compared it to X Factor. And, you know, in many ways that's true. It is that kind of sort of modern X Factor potential of trying to find the winner um, each year. So in some ways, uh, in many ways, a very different kind of experience. Uh, and indeed, in, in terms of cultural importance, obviously theatre has huge importance in our society today as, as a form of culture, as a form of expression. But it is primarily, above all, a form of entertainment. And in the ancient world, we have to see theatre taking on another level. Uh, than just entertainment. It was, particularly in Athens, particularly in the 5th century, a form of education. The ancient Greek word for a playwright was didaskalos, which actually means a teacher. Uh, and that's that's crucial. These plays were meant to teach audiences crucial lessons about how to debate and think through difficult, knotty problems, how to make them in many ways better democratic citizens. Uh, and in that world, uh, theatre had a, you know, a fundamental role to play. So the, the plays had quite an educational role in that respect. Did the playwrights, were they told from on high that they had to write plays in this style or, or did they themselves want to create plays that would teach people? I, I think it's a little bit of both. I, I mean, first of all, these playwrights, particularly people like Aeschylus, Sophocles and Euripides, they were not full-time playwrights. They were That's not all they did. Aeschylus was a war hero. He fought on the battlefields of Marathon in that great victory of the Greeks over the Persians. Sophocles was a, a general. He, was, he held hugely important civic positions within Athenian society. So these people sort of had day jobs, if you like, um, and also wrote plays on the side. They were completely caught up in, in the workings of the Athenian system. And at the same time, clearly there was some kind of direction being given. We know in the, in the very early days of, of, of Greek tragedy in Athens that a play was actually banned after its first performance because it was too historical. It was on a subject too close to the bone, too close to recent history. What you know, the Athenians seemed to have wanted and what was really appreciated was taking an ancient myth that had happened a long, long time ago, so wasn't too close, too personal, but which, by the way it was put on stage, by the way it was, the story was told, could be made to mean something very important for the workings of the Athenian democracy and the Athenian system. So over time, I think you're absolutely right that the, the system of the of the Dionysia festival where plays were put on in Athens uh, 
pushed the playwrights towards constructing and writing plays that were not only appropriate, but also at the end of the day, this was a competition. They were out to win, you know, that they had to uh, create things that, and, and put on things that would be popular. So there was also an onus on being entertaining, being, say, funny or dramatic. Or they, they had to also win the crowd over as well as teach them. Yeah, I, and uh, I don't think we should narrow it down to winning the crowd by being funny or entertaining. Um, I think you could win the crowd by offering something serious and meaningful that people saw the point of. Some of the plays that, if you like, hit hardest uh, on the Athenians uh, and, and, and gave them the sort of the most stern lessons, if you like, did very well in, in the competition. And at the same time, we have also all the comedies that are being written by the likes of Aristophanes. Uh, and you know, partly there were some comedies at the big Dionysia festival, but they also had a separate festival for, for comedy called the Lanaia. Um, and there the comedians like Aristophanes really let rip and they let rip, you know, really taking the piss out of senior politicians and senior civic figures who would be sitting there right in the audience. And there we do know that the more biting, the more satirical the commentary, the more they really took the mick out of these people, the more the audience loved them and the more they did well uh, in the competition. I'm not sure this is a possible question to answer, but by, say, today's dramatic standards, were ancient Greek plays actually any good? Would a modern playwright be impressed with the kind of thing they were writing? Uh, yeah, I think it is a question, uh, you know, we can ask. And I, I think there's a very different answer for tragedy compared to comedy. Comedy, the ancient comedies of Aristophanes, people really struggle to make them funny when they put them on today. And, and I think, to a certain extent, that's because... They are extraordinary, extraordinary flights of fancy in many ways. And of course, we're also lacking the very immediate political context. You know, we're, we're not sitting there in the audience with the political figures like Cleon sitting amongst us that these plays are, are taking the mick out of. So I think we do struggle with comedy and particularly Aristophanic comedy to, to, to see them and, and, and to put them on today. Our comedy, as we understand it, very much... Uh, comes from a different genre of comedy, which is exemplified by an ancient playwright called Menander, who was operating in the, the later 4th century BC. And that's much more sort of kitchen sink drama, domestic bliss, domestic torment, stock characters like the grumpy old man, stuff that we re recognise today, like men behaving badly or one foot in the grave or friends or something like that. Um, that's much more our comedy. That's the kind of stuff we can still find funny. But tragedy, on the other hand, I don't think has lost anything and stands absolutely proud and tall amongst all the stuff that is written today, mainly because it speaks to ultimately very human issues that, that just haven't changed over the last two and a half thousand years. Emotions like love and hate, but also questions and difficult issues like justice and revenge. The first play I ever worked on an ancient Greek tragedy was Euripides' Medea, where a woman who has given her husband everything, sort of cut herself off from her family and her world, and is then spurned by her husband who, who runs off with a younger woman, has to decide how to get her revenge. And she decides the best way to do it is to kill her own children, to deny her her husband, her ex-husband, uh, sons and descendants. Now, that has meaning and power, whatever society and whatever time and whatever place you perform it in.
So would you say then that the legacy of, of Greek drama is more apparent? Has modern tragedy on, say, film and television, has that taken more from Greek theatre than our modern comedies have? Um, yes, to a certain extent. I mean, I think our modern comedies have very much taken inspiration dating back sort of through Shakespeare, through the Roman playwrights like Plautus and Terence, back to Menander, this character of the 4th century BC. So there is a definite connection uh, with comedy. But with tragedy, yes, I mean, you see uh, modern tragedies and you see modern plays that essentially put on stage a conflict. It's a conflict of ideas where two people who have different understandings of what should be done have to argue it out and that's the basis of tragedy you know the center of any ancient greek tragedy is a dialogue which in in greek is known as the agon the conflict the debate and it's a, a rapid fire set of responses between these two people who are just loggerheads over their different ideas and their different ways of thinking and at the heart of any successful play i think is that kind of conflict of ideas that's put on to the audience, given to the audience. You know, it's like throwing a ball to the audience and saying, what would you do with this? What do you think? Who should we go with? You know, what do you uh, decide? And we talked a bit about the playwrights so far. Do we know anything at all about the people that would have acted in Greek theatre? Yeah, I mean, during the 5th century, in fact, the, the actors, the people who performed in the choruses uh, in Greek tragedy were Athenian citizens. You know, it was almost part of your duty, if you like, uh, to, to, to be on the stage as well as be in the audience. And people acted in the choruses in the same sort of civic groupings as they did lots of things like voting, like going to war, all these kinds of things. But over time, and particularly through the course of the 4th century BC, actors, sort of professional actors started to develop. And you even got guilds of actors, so, um, you know, groupings of actors who stood up and, and spoke in, in, in some ways for sort of actors' rights and, 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 and actors' pay, etc. And we know the names of, of some of these people. You know, there's a very famous actor in the 4th century called Neoptolemus, uh, who became a bit of a superstar. I mean, really a sort of Brad Pitt-type uh, figure. And these actors were so much superstars that they would occasionally be sent on diplomatic missions to represent Athens. So we know that Athens did send its one of its most famous actors up as part of its diplomatic envoy to Philip of Maston in the 4th century to sort of debate and discuss on their behalf. So th there was a sense that, that, that actors were superstars, just like they are today, and that they were renowned for um, particular styles and genres. Uh, actors tended to stay, they would, they would be a famous tragic actor or they would be a famous comic actor uh, people rarely did both um, but you know we certainly can get a sense of them and, and their livelihoods and would there have been in those days the equivalent of like the modern theatre critic would Greek writers have commented on plays or at the time and said whether they thought they were any good or not well, I, I think every member of the audience, every Athenian citizen, by the very nature of how drama worked in ancient Athens, would have been encouraged to be a critic, to comment on what they agreed with, what they didn't agree with, to discuss it in the bars and taverns afterwards. I think that would have been absolutely crucial to drama performing its function in ancient Athens. Uh, and as time goes on, yeah, you know, we get a sense that uh, people are reacting to these plays and commenting on them. Uh, there is some sense that even the great playwrights themselves, Aeschylus, Sophocles, Euripides, are all sort of commenting a little bit on each other's work as they go through. Um, and Aristophanes very famously wrote a comedy in which the great tragedians all meet up uh, when they're in when they're dead as the, the spirits of the underworld and sort of talk to one another about their different plays. 
And something that you, you mentioned earlier about how prisoners might have been let out to see the plays, were these really universal events? I mean, could, for example, could women go and watch or the plays and even act in the plays? What about sort of people from outside of Athens, non-Greeks? Did it apply to everyone or was it sort of very much a Greek affair? No, it's a really interesting mix, actually. I mean, for tragedy and for the Dionysia Festival, it was held in about March time. Now, that's open sailing time. So there would definitely have been non-Athenians in Athens. And indeed, we know that representatives of the Athenian Empire were often encouraged, indeed obliged to attend. And lots of other foreigners would have been there as well. So the Dionysia and tragedy was Athens, if you like, and the plays were, were, were being shown to the world, not just to Athenians. Very different for the comedy festival, the Lanaya, which was held earlier in the year, January, February time, closed sailing season. So it was much more Athenians speaking to Athenians and washing their dirty linen very much in front of themselves and, and, and not uh, foreigners and outsiders. On the question of women, that's a really interesting one. There is not a single piece of evidence that survives from the ancient world that categorically tells us one way or other whether women were in the auditorium or not. We know they weren't on the stage. All men, only men on the stage, men acting the female parts. But were they in the audience? And the answer to that depends very much on whether you see the plays being more part of a religious experience as they were it was all wrapped up within a festival in honor of Dionysus and in religious experiences women often had a crucial role to play and as such some people argue that women would definitely have been there or whether you see theatre as much more political experience like voting and debating on the Athenian assembly hill the Panix in which case we know women definitely weren't there and if you take that view then people tend to argue that that women probably weren't in the auditorium it's an absolutely crucial question which we don't have a categorical answer to and just one last question what would you say is your favorite greek play and why Oh, that's a really tough one. I mean, I think Euripides Medea will always have uh, a really special place for me as it was the first play that I came into contact with. And I, I think it stands as such an extraordinary uh, investigation into human emotions and human psyche. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I'd probably go for that one. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show 
by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That was Michael Scott. You can read an article by Michael on Greek comedies and tragedies in our November issue, which is out now. And if you'd like to hear more from Michael, listen out for his forthcoming BBC Radio 4 series, Spin the Globe, which airs next month. Alison Brown is a historian at Edge Hill University who specialises in crime and punishment. As part of our History Explorer series, she recently paid a visit to the 19th century Beaumaris Jail in Anglesey, in the company of our features editor, Charlotte Hodgman. We're standing just at the entrance to Beaumaris um, Prison. Um, can you just explain a little bit about what we're seeing in front of us, the, kind of the shape of the building, what it, what it looks like? OK. Well, the main door mm-hmm. is about 12 foot in front of us. Yeah. And the actual facade to the front of the building is actually quite small relative to the size of the building. And it's got 1829 etched above the doorway, just in case we were in any uh, doubt about when it was uh, opened. Now, the facade, it's very simple, very bold, very strong, quite sort of neoclassical with its clear, straight lines. The facade is interesting because there's actually very little embellishment on the outside of this building. I mean, it's quite, given the size of the town, it's quite a big, bold, heavy, monolithic structure. Very imposing, isn't it? Extremely imposing. The the external walls must be at least 30 foot high, I'd have thought. And apparently there were uh, originally loose slates on the top that were were, were vertical just in case anyone ever got up that high and could get over it and of course only one person ever did and they broke their leg on the other side but did they get away no they were caught no they were caught shortly after (laughs) yes so the externality of the prison is is pretty impressive and Mm. it's in an area of lots of small working class housing yeah which kind of shows us what what the external feature of this prison was meant to say. It's very deterrent, very imposing. There's a real moral lesson to what's going on outside this yeah. prison. Shall we go inside? Okay. <laughs> what would have been, what would happen then to the prisoner once they entered the building? What would have happened to them then? Because the, this prison was open over a 50-year period, but it's mm. quite an important 50-year period, actually what happened to them on entry would have changed over right. that time. So, um, in some respects, this prison, obviously it was built in 1829, was quite progressive, quite advanced. Yeah. So, for example, it has in-cell sanitation. You know, there's, there's a, a, a wash basin running water that, that empties out into a toilet in right. every cell. So okay. quite progressive, quite innovative yeah. for its day in that sense. But, for, but, but when it was opened, there was no bath, no. for example. And that wasn't obtained until, I think, the 1840s. 1850s. 1850s. And they'd actually get a bar. Um, in so their own cells, you mean they would no, get a bar? Oh, okay, no, just, just a bar. For the institution. So, and thereafter, they, they, they would have a reception process. Yeah. Yeah. Where um, they're basically stripped down, cleaned, and then after that, they have a bath once a month. But in the early days, when they came in here, into uh, the 1840s, there was no bath. They kept their own clothes. Right, okay. For quite a long time here. Um, and um, actually, many in many cases, didn't didn't sleep in a separate cell at night either. So it's a very different system. Yeah, very. A very different way of running the prison, a very different experience, I think, in say 1829, 1830, to what it was in the 1870s and the years 
Right, so it didn't to close you. It's quite a short amount of time. It sounds like it changed an awful lot then. Absolutely. I think the main difference within that period of time is the establishment of the prison inspectors mm. in 1835. And they, although they don't have a lot of legal pressure to bear, although there are some, obviously yeah. you've got the Jail Act in 1823 and then 1835 and other legislation, although finance, of course, is, yeah. a, big, is yeah. a big weapon for, for, uh, for national government. They have a lot of um, propaganda mm. power, if you like, and you can actually see through the inspector's reports them highlighting particular things that they're not happy about, and then within the next four or five years, those things are usually changed. Right. Okay. Like dietary, for example. When this prison was first opened... The pr- each prisoner was given two shillings, four pence a week. Yeah. Someone came into the prison and they could order what they wanted. Yeah. That would be delivered. The prisoners would cook their own food. That would be absolutely against all the principles of the separate system. Right. Okay. One of the indications here, along this long main corridor, mm. that it wasn't um, heavily influenced by the separate system when it was built yeah. is that there's actually very little light. There's no... And, and it's the same with the top floor except where the later wing was built oh, okay. in 1867. Yeah. Yeah. So although you can see the influence of, say, radial designs, although it's a very basic one because it's, it's basically two wings at the, yeah. at the beginning, although another one is built later, there's not much use made of natural light. On so, this corridor. So when you say the separate system, can yeah. you just maybe explain what, what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, the separate system was the system that um, became very popular from... Well, it got a lot of attention from about the 1830s. Mm. There's two individuals who were uh, later appointed as the prison inspectors for the home district, yeah. London and, and the South, uh, Crawford and uh, Russell mm-hmm. and Crawford goes over to he's sent over to America right. to take a look at the prisons there and in America New York State have taken on the silent system which basically means you have work in association during the day in say workshops yeah. um, but with strict supervision so if anyone talks they'd be severely punished right. and separate cells at night uh, whereas Philadelphia had adopted the separate system well, they called it solitude, mm-hmm. which was basically the individuals would be kept in solitude <clears throat> for 23 or even 23 and a half hours of their day, aside from a period in exercise or in a, a chapel. Yeah. And even the chapel would be organised on a separate system, so you'd have little cubicles that divided them from their fellow prisoner. There is the last remaining one in the world major separate system chapel is actually Lincoln. Why? Oh, so okay. In, in, yeah. In, uh, in Lincolnshire in Britain. Um, and even at exercise, they'd be in separate. So they never had enclosures. really contact with anybody? No. Um, they'd have uh, occasional contact with, say, the chaplain, mm. and the idea was that it would open their mind to spiritual. Um, Teaching and morality. And to reflect on what they'd done. And Absolutely. Like very, it was called a penitentiary, yeah. so it's that, that kind of idea. It's to, to make evildoers reflect on their sins, to become a penitent and find their own way. So it wasn't just redemption. as a, a form of punishment then? Because it, like like it does sound like a punishment when you explain it, but um, obviously it was meant actually to, like you say, to 
I think it varied, and I think mm. it varies over the time that we're looking at. So, yeah. But certainly, the, many of the ideas underpinning this separate system were quite, or considered at the time, quite progressive, and many yeah. religious individuals, you know, gave quite a lot of power to chaplains within the prisons. Yeah. So, so there were very, some very positive ideas about the force of religion. And many of these ideas came, and, and many of the, its most its strongest advocates were evangelical, were Quakers. Yeah, yeah and that's, that's where a lot of the, the um, power behind that movement um, came from in Philadelphia. Okay. So the Eastern State Penitentiary in Philadelphia is, yeah. is, is open to the public now. It's another, yeah. another big prison museum. It's one of the biggest tourist attractions yeah. in the state. So there, so there was some thought then to, towards prisoners becoming better people for, for when they were released. Um, Absolutely. Was, that, was there any other type of um, anything else that was done for prisoners? Were they taught any sort of work or any sort of skills while they were in prison? It varied a lot. Mm. And of course, you, you, the labour, and it's still a problem for yeah. prisons, of course, not just in Britain, mm. but across the world. But the forms of labour that you can ask prisoners to do are limited by lots of things. Now, Bumaris is a local prison, so most of the prisoners here were here for very short periods of time. Right, okay. Most of the prisoners that came here would have been here for less than two months, and some of them for a week or two weeks. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Occasionally, you would get a prisoner who, a convict who'd been sentenced to a much longer prison sentence, perhaps mm. a minimum of two years, but they'd only be held here until they were transferred to a convict prison. Right. Yeah. Or transported yeah. in the earlier period, depending on when it was. Okay. Because um, the prison actually is relatively small, doesn't hold, it was, I think, designed for 30, up to 30 inmates. Yeah. Um, would it ever have been full? It was only. Over its 50-year, roughly 50-year lifestyle, I think it was probably only full in that sense, maybe for about 10 years or right, so. okay. For a lot of the time, it wasn't full at all. And for most, I mean, in the last 10 years, it was only held an av- a daily average of about 10. Yeah. And same with about the first decade. Okay. And other times, maybe between 10 and 20. Okay. Um, but it's really only that the sort of second half of the 1840s into the 1850s, mm. when you've got economic depression... You've got the Irish famines, you've got a big influx of, of yeah. Irish coming over. But you've also got the impact of industry. Mm. So if you look on the census reports, for example, which give you a glimpse of who's in the prison mm. every 10 years, you, you note in the census for 1851 a lot of different kinds of miners, so yeah. copper miners and slate miners, yeah, okay, a more yeah. industrial kind of workforce. And then, but before that, it's agricultural labourers. Right. Now, I just noticed that the sun has gone in a little bit and how dark it would have been in here because it's quite bright when we walked in, wasn't it? Yeah, so but the, what it would be like on a winter's day. Yeah, it's very oppressive, isn't it? Yes. Very oppressive. In front of us, actually, some, we've got some of the chains and um, legs. Perhaps before we move on, we can have a chat about maybe kind of punishments and things like that. What was used to keep prisoners under control? Or to punish them for anything was that actually the case? Were they used? I think uh, I think for most, if not all, of the period, they, there's a possibility they may have been used very early. Mm. But uh, for the bulk, most of the period, you just you're talking about uh, a period of time on bread and water in a dark cell, yes. which is the, which is the, the punishment that would have been used yeah. by far the most yeah. in this prison. Yeah. So when would leg shackles and things like that have been used that we've got in, in front of us? Would that be for ex- when they were exercising in the yard? or? Well, in the, in the early period, they, were, uh, they could have been used for exercising in the yard, but to be honest, um, I, think, I think the extent to which they've been used has been 
um, overly emphasised. Right. There's a lot. I mean, obviously, Bumaris has its official website, but there's a lot of other websites out there yeah. that take great pleasure in emphasising that <laughs> these are here. Yeah. But actually, um, uh, in what I've seen of the prison records, mm. they're not emphasised. Yeah? Okay. And, and I, and in fact, on the whole, my impression is that the recorded punishment's quite low. Yeah. Now, what goes on outside of that is much more difficult to determine. Mm. Um, and in many senses, more difficult in the later period, although, of course, all the, the other kind of organisational um, aspects of, a, of running a big institution are much more mm. developed. Yeah. Um, so, in, historically, we can never really know no. the extent to which, say, punishments or infor- informal punishments, beatings yeah. or whatever, went on. But, I mean, I think on the whole, my impression of Bumaris is that it wasn't... In many respects, it was run quite leniently until quite late, until the 1860s. Um, It wasn't even run efficiently on the silent system because there were too few staff here. Um, For the first decade or so, there were no turnkeys here. Okay. It was just the governor and his wife and and one or two other sort of Mm. um, additional staff that weren't full-time. Obviously, you had a, a, a doctor and you had a chaplain, but they're not full-time here. Right. Yeah. So if they professed to um, have the silent system, but actually if you're talking about a workroom full of people... It'd be quite hard to, to impose if, if we had, like you say, had not many people to, to enforce it. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. And that's a persistent complaint of the prison inspectors. Yeah. That, yeah, this is running on the, on the silent system, but how can this possibly be imposed yeah. on the staff that, that are operating here? And that kind of indicates the tensions between a centralising government that's yeah. looking for uniformity, but you don't get nationalisation until 1878, mm-hmm. and, the, and what still is the locally, essentially locally controlled system. And often, once you get outside, it becomes more obvious once you get outside of the big prisons about mm. which there's been lots of historical interest, is how much local authority power how much of a difference that made. So many local authorities, especially, you know, in the provinces, were parsimonious because they had to answer to the ratepayers. You know, they had to pay for the upkeep of this building. And what's a relatively... I mean, it's the the county prison for for Anglesey, but but actually it's it's a relatively small town. It's not a Manchester. It's not an industrialised Manchester of the 1860s (laughs) or a Liverpool. You know, it's a relatively small town that has spent about £6,500 on an institution in 1829. So it's a major investment. Mm. But when it comes to staff, we're still quite parsimonious. Okay. And actually just down the hall here is the men's workroom. We can just have a pop in there. So what sort of thing, what sort of work would men have done in, the, in this sort of room? Because the nature of the prisoners, so they're here for short terms, mm-hmm. they're largely unskilled, although some of them would have had industrial skills, yeah. at, especially at a particular kind of time. There's little that you can actually get them to do. Yeah. So stone breaking, which went out on the stone breaking yard just outside there. Yeah. This room, oak picking. Okay. And basically, open picking, they buy an old rope from the shipyards, mm-hmm. and um, the job was to take apart the rope, yeah, to, to and then and then sell it back because it was used for caulking on the ships, and they'd stuff it into the seams and put pitch over it to to make the, the ships. So it was actually work that was useful work. Oh, yes. Wasn't, okay. Yeah, and it made a profit. Unlike stone breaking, where apparently they bought in large stones. Mm. Um, 
at a cost, obviously, and then the prisoners would break them up into small chippings, mm. but apparently that was, they were sold back at a loss. And right. that got something like a third of the price that, was, that they paid for mm. buying the stones in, so it really was a make-work task. Yeah. One of the things I really like about this room, and mm-hmm. it kind of indicates how informal or even lax the system may have been, yeah. is that on the floor over there, yeah. some inmates have carved initials. Oh, have they? The floor. Didn't see that. Yeah. Oh, look, yeah. Look at that. That says, is it J-O-J, Hollyhead, three months. Yeah. And there's an anchor there. We won't know whether that's the same person that's mm-hmm. done that and it looks like to be like a bird on the next one oh, yeah. now not only is that a fascinating yeah. you know remnant of from, from people who who really didn't have a voice but also that's pretty deeply embedded it would have taken someone quite a while to do that it's also somebody who could write as well so obviously the literate yeah but apparently at least according to the chaplain the literacy levels here are reasonably good right okay and probably better than for example some of the urban areas in england so, yeah, so what you're saying, they thought that somebody had time to do that when they were in the, the, the official workroom. Yeah, um, and they may have been able to cover it once it was there with mm, open. Yeah, but, but they still would have had to have the time. Like you say, it's quite... To actually do it. Feel how, yeah, and that's... I mean, these are, are pretty thick tiles, aren't yeah. they? Yeah. And they're, 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 they've quite, almost got my finger in there. Yeah, and there's a couple more over. Yeah, there's one there. Oh, yeah. OJ three months. Is it the same? Quite the same, person? likely. And there's another one here that I can't really read, but there's bits, yeah. Yeah, all over the floor. Yeah. So, um, so it's kind of an indication that there, yeah. was, there was unlikely to have been a yeah. prison ward here all the time, or if there was a prison ward here, they certainly um, weren't doing their job. <laughs> so this is the new, this was built in 1867. This oh, okay, this is the newer part. This is the later part. So you can walk automatically see the difference, especially, so you've got a very... Impressive, given the size of the building, cast iron staircase, which is very solid, isn't it? Yeah, Yeah, it's great. But if you walk up it, and these are cells in 1867, one of the things that they do is they heat cells almost from the beginning, certainly the 1830s. The prison inspector is he complains firstly that the cells are too small Mm -hmm. to change to the site to the separate system. And then a bit later, it's more about the heating, because if you're keeping someone in a cell for long periods of time, Mm. maybe 23 out of 24 hours a day, in Britain, although less so in America, actually, in Britain, they had quite rigid rules and regulations about the size of the cell. It needed to have sanitation, toilet, heating, light. So in 1867, you get this new wing built, and heating is, is then put in, so you, for the first time you can have the separate system. One of the great things that survived at Pumaris is the signalling system from each of the cells. I wonder what those were, yes. Now, they don't all work. No. Um, here's, here's one. So, you've got a handle on the inside, here. Yeah. And there's one or two that actually still work. Yeah. And basically, the prisoner, if they need attention, twists the handle. Yeah. And what happens on the outside, there's a wire that goes up to... The bell would have been down there. Oh, I see. A bell. Yeah. But also, this flap opens. Right. So, if the warder is down the corridor, he can hear the bell. And see which prisoner. And when he walks... So, he, needs, he knows one of the prisoners in the cells needs him. Yeah. But when he gets here, the flap is open. So, he can actually tell which of the cell. And he can take a look through the spy hole in the door. 
And that's, that's a, that was a new introduction? That, that was here from the beginning. Right, OK. Yeah. So we've actually found the signal that works, haven't we? And that would have alerted the... Yeah. It's pretty loud. And you yeah. can also see how that would have worked to open the flap. Yeah. And just looking at these cells, I mean, these, like you say, are the, the better cells, the yes. improved cells. And they're still yeah. very small, aren't they? And dark. Yes, but they're kind of regulation size. Yes, so how, how big are they? Heating and the ventilation, which is crucial if you're in a relatively small. Right, so ventilation above the door. Then you're, so how are they? How are the heat? How are they heated the cells? Well, the heating they put in. There's a. I haven't actually. I'm not sure if you can actually get down underneath, but they put in a kind of coal-fired stove in the cellar, and then ducting to each of the cells. Okay. So not all of the cells have have this. Just the, 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 the separate system, you yeah. needed that. Because in America, where at an early period, they were much less um, scrupulous about what you needed, mm. and, you know, about light and yeah. um, space, that kind of thing. They, they, it must have been stifling not yeah. to have... I mean, it was bad enough here. When you're thinking about that, an early point, it's quite innovative, mm. yeah, uh, Very. You know, architecturally important, um, you know, innovations about heating and soundproofing was the other one. Yeah. Not so much here, but places like Pentonville, lots of experiments about how you stop prisoners communicating with each other. Because yeah. there's concern about prisoners' health, so you don't want any physical contamination, no. diseases being transferred, but more about moral contamination. How do you stop prisoners corrupting each yeah. other? Which, of course, is the underpinning for the whole of the separate system as well. Yeah. And how big would you say this, this cell is? Um, this is about 13 by 7 by 10, yeah, which is so about, about regulation. Okay, what would have been in here? They'd have a bed? They'd have had a bed mm-hmm. or a hammock. Okay. Uh, they varied here. Yeah. Some had bedsteads, some had hammocks. Uh, a small table, um, a stool, and you've got the shelf mm-hmm. in the corner. Um, they didn't have plank beds here. Now, one of the things okay. stipulated by the 1865 Act, that mm-hmm. kind of famous phrase, you know, hard work, hard fare, hard bed. Mm-hmm. So, hard labour. Yeah. Um, dietary that was regulated, sufficient, but monotonous, mm-hmm. and a hard bed. And by, by that, they meant the first three months on planks. Gosh. Yeah. But they didn't have those here. They either had a hammock or a pallet straw in it. Okay. And how long would they have been confined to the cells for a day? Did that depend on their on what they'd done or was that just the same for everybody? Uh, it would it depends on how rigid the separate system was was imposed. Mm. And I think here it's less rigid than in right. some of the other prisons. But the idea of the separate system would be twenty three hours a day. Thank gosh. So although, I'm sort of getting a sense that although that prisons very much did almost what they wanted with regards to how they ran, there were systems in place, but yeah. perhaps not every prison adhered to them. Yeah, and, and I mean, one of the beauties, one of the great things that is revealed from Bumaris prison is how diverse mm. prisons were across the country. Yeah. And into quite a late period, certainly in the 1870s, how much control still lay in local hands. Now, from the 1840s, central government is giving money, Mm -hmm. granting aid, to help 
support the costs of prisons and encourage new building and, and modifications in prisons. Yeah. So, of course, there's that kind of lever yeah. to make change happen locally. And the prison inspectors use that as well as their propaganda. You know, they, they, they uh, promote different methods and they, they publicise where local prisons are not doing yeah. very well. Um, but there's still a, a large amount of diversity. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it changes over time. So in Bumaris, you can see from a very quite lax system early on, prisoners are buying in the, you know, given a certain amount of money, buying in their own food, cooking it themselves. Gradually, you get a, a more regulated dietary. But it's not until the late 1850s, I think, when you get the local prison accepting the state diet, because the, the, the central government is drawing up all of these regulations for diets, size of cell, things like that. Yeah. Um, so it's not really until the 1860s that Bumaris becomes anything like uh, a highly regulated prison, and even then it's not on the kind of scale no. that, that the kind of classic idea of the separate system is about. Yeah. Uh, so, for example, you get, in all of its life, as far as I can see, there's only one escape from this prison, because obviously... You know, the walls are huge. Um, And that happens in 1859. And it leads to an inquiry, obviously because he's escaped, you know, someone's responsible, Mm. how could this possibly happen? And the inquiry reveals that this man escaped in his own clothes and and actually had been in his own clothes for at least several weeks prior to his escape. Mm. But there was supposed to have been prison clothes for all prisoners. Now, they did say that before, you know, in the, in the, in the few weeks before prison, prisoners leaving, they were allowed to wear their own clothes, yeah. but this guy still had a year. Right. So there's a prisoner in this prison wearing his own clothes when he should have been in prison dress, mm-hmm. and he was unlikely to have been the only one, yeah. and that wasn't noticed. Now, there's something going on mm, there. Definitely. Yeah. So these little, little hatches here... Yes, because prisoners were in the cells for much longer, mm. they were allowed some light. Oh, okay. Because the gas supplies were switched off at certain times, so right. you put you put a candle in there. So oh, right. See. And down the bottom here is the governor's office. Right. Yep. And it gives you a clue that obviously surveillance was nothing as we're just walking through the height of the door frames very low quite interesting yeah I'm almost five seven yeah this is what five five eight, eight. eight. yeah it's about an inch yeah it's top of your so head. none of these doors are, lo- are larger than that are higher than five eight was five that, nine that was on purpose was it was that people were smaller then oh okay yeah. <laughs> and I think on average people in Wales are slightly shorter <laughs> <laughs> as my Welsh husband says he was built for the mines <laughs> Uh, so there are all those height differences over yeah, time. Definitely, and you can sort of definitely see it in things like that, can't you? So this is the governor's office. Um, go in. The furniture is apparently from, bought in from you know, it's old school furniture, so it's not original. Mm-hmm. But it gives you an idea about how he could view along yes. the corridors. And this apparently was the kind of sweet point, if you like, where a warder could stand. And so that's the big down. white, big white yeah. spot painted on the floor. Yeah. But you can hear the seagulls and the, the sea and that outside, even though... Yeah, it must have been. And these, there's two doors above us as well. Yeah, I mean, there, there would have been walkways, 
Now the walkway, the main walkway that there isn't now is of course the walkway to the, the, the two individuals that were executed here would have used. Right. Because the, the door goes to the outside, but there's no way you can go down there now. Right. And of course it goes to the outside because executions were public until 1868. And both those, and the last one's 1859, I okay. think. And this, this room here, it says it's the cell of the condemned. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm guessing this is where... The, the, well, there's only two people who, that we know who were executed, weren't there? They would yes. have waited before their execution? Uh, yeah, they were allowed up to... They always allowed a certain amount of time between being sentenced mm-hmm. and the execution being carried out right. in a, to enable the prisoner and their family to uh, petition. Right, Petition okay. the Home Office. Um, because most, most people that were sentenced to death, it wasn't actually carried out. Right, okay. Uh, even in the sort of height of the bloody code era, yeah. where you've got 200 offences or more that could result in the death penalty, most of those individuals never actually went to their deaths. Okay. Um, Here we go. So Two public Griffith. executions during the lifetime of the jail. William Griffiths, who was a bigamist, executed in 1830 for the attempted murder of one of his wives. Uh, well, Apparently he tried to put a, uh, a brush pole or something down her throat. Mm, very nasty. Yeah. Uh, and in 1862, Richard Rowland was hanged for the murder of his father-in-law, although it says he proclaimed his innocence to, to the end. Yeah, and they're, sort of, um, they're sort of quite renowned, these two prisons, aren't they? One of them, I think, was sort of dragged, almost dragged out to the... Yes. Yeah. So his, uh, his death. Yeah. But I think, I think that's quite... Um, it's, I mean, they, they've, I think at Bumaris they've done this quite well and mm. people are going to be interested in people that are yes. executed. Yeah. But they haven't let it take over the exhibition. Yeah. You know, what's here? Because there's so much more here that's important. And if anything, it's more important to show the mundane, the, mm. the, how mundane prison life was on a day-to-day level. Yeah. Um, obviously less so for prisoners on shorter sentences because you've always got that coming and going. Mm. Yeah? So that idea of a, an isolated, total institution, if you like, isn't, doesn't really relate to local prisons. No. And as for the big London local prisons like Hall Bathfield, you've got dozens of people coming and going every yeah. day, so it's quite a, a bustle. Yeah. Um, so, so that kind of image doesn't really work for here, and you'd have seen new people you know, mm. coming in, in and out. Yeah. Okay. There's, in the corner there, you can see the fall, which is great, at least these have survived, you know. Oh. So you've got the tap running water into there, you've even got the pipe that still exists. Yeah, yeah. Very, very clever, isn't it? And there's, and there's your toilet. Gosh. So, what sort of value do you think these prisons have for for sort of people nowadays looking around, what, is it important to keep these sorts of prisons open for people to look around, do you think? Absolutely. I mean, I suppose like all museums, they are kind of thinking environments. They're mm-hmm. environments to get you thinking about the past in constructive ways, but also ways that, that respect the individuals from the past, mm-hmm. often individuals that have no voice yeah. now. Um, and it's only fairly recently that the historians have intentionally tried to unpick and reveal 
what went on for the working classes. It's been only since the 1970s when historians have really become interested in ordinary people. Mm. And in many cases, the the, the best view, the best glimpses we get of the lives of working people or or what you might call uh, an underclass, as they were called at the table, criminal classes, Mm. um, is through institutions. Because how would these their lives have been recorded yeah, when they met institutions. Yeah. So their baptism may have been recorded. Yeah. Yeah. But chances are they, no working records would have survived. So you've really got uh, asylums, hospitals, prisons. Yeah? Yeah. That's, that's where ordinary people are shown and yeah. so you can get a little bit more of an insight into their life. Sometimes a very restricted and sad life. For some people going from institution to institution because mm. they have no other alternatives. So prison museums are great because they're thinking environments and prison museums especially because the public rightly can't just go in and tour and operate in prison. Um, it wouldn't be right, it would be humiliating for the prisoners and mm. also there are serious security issues okay. involved. Yeah. Um, so the next best thing is that they can come into prison museums and get a real hopefully get a feel for what life was like for kind of ordinary prisoners that was Alison Brown you can read Alison's article about Beaumaris Jail in our November issue which is out now and on sale in all good news agents and digitally and if you'd like to find out more about the jail you can do so at visitanglesey.co.uk well that's almost all for this week do get in touch with your views on podcast at historyextra.com and we'll do our best to read out some of your messages in future episodes. One listener who got in touch recently was Chris Lightfoot. Chris writes, I spend about six months of the year growing wheat in Kalk Gol, far eastern Mongolia, which is about as far from civilization as it is possible to get without leaving the planet. Driving a tractor across the steppe while listening to trials and tribulations of English monarchy, is both informative and entertaining, albeit a somewhat surreal experience. Thanks for that, Chris. Now, I wonder if he might be our most remote listener. If anyone out there can trump Far Eastern Mongolia, then please get in touch and let us know. And as well as email, you can keep in touch with us on social media. We're on Twitter at History Extra, and we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash History Extra. And you can visit our website, historyextra.com, where you'll find history news, image galleries, blogs, quizzes and more. In next week's podcast, we'll be talking about the history of football and getting a sneak preview of the National Portrait Gallery's amazing new Tudors exhibition. Do join us for that. The History Extra podcast is recorded in Bristol and produced by Jack Fletcher. collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.